baggage. And I want to start by saying there's two kinds of travelers in this world. There are journey people, and journey people enjoy the trip. You know, they like all phases of the trip. Even if it's a long trip by car with the kids, they like it all. They like the togetherness. They like singing the songs. They like playing the ABC song. They like it all. If they're flying, they don't mind, uh, they don't mind the, the delays. They don't mind any of that stuff. They're just they're journey people. They like the trip. They, they just enjoy it, kick back, and just enjoy all of it. Then there are destination people. Destination people just want to get there, okay? Don't, don't give me a lot of fluff. Don't delay my flight. Don't make it long. Don't, you know, no construction on the interstate. None of that stuff. Just get me there. I, don't, I don't, can't handle a lot of other stuff. Now, for the most part, for the most part, I would like to think I'm a journey person. Now, I can get a little cranky along the way, but I, I can kind of roll with the punches. I don't fly a whole lot, but when I do, I don't mind the delay. If I've got an iPod or a book or something, I'm usually pretty good there. Um, I will admit to the fact that the, probably the part of flying that I like the least is the baggage stuff. You know, when you've got to take the bags and drop them off and um, j- just got to keep up with it. I always have in my head this, you remember the, I think it was a Samsonite commercial when, you, when they showed the Samsonite luggage being checked at the baggage counter and then it goes, it goes through those things and then it gets back there and the apes get a hold of you. Remember that? And they're beating it all up. That's kind of the image I have in my head. Once my bag disappears, that's what it's going to. The apes are back there trying to tear it apart. So, so that's the part that I like the least. When my family travels, now there's five of us. I realize some of you have a bigger family than that. When my family travels, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's full on, okay? I've brought a picture to show you what it looks like when my family travels. Let's see if we can get that up. There you go. There you go. That's... That's pretty much a typical vacation for us. Um, baggage can kill the travel process. Am I right? It just makes it no fun. Some people will avoid, to avoid baggage claim altogether, you'll see them at the airport. They've got stuff hanging off of every possible appendage on their body just trying to make it through the airport because they don't want to check their bags. And they're the ones... You see them, they, they're coming down the, the aisle of the airplane and they're banging everybody in the back of the head with their luggage and they get to the overhead bin and they've got this massive huge bag and they're going to try and fit it in this tiny, tiny space and you're, you're just sitting there watching saying, dude, that, that is not going in there. Those are people who don't know what to do with their baggage and, and they, their whole thing is, um, you know, they, they just don't want to admit that they've got a baggage problem and, and they're not going to... Uh, check it. They're just going to take all that stuff with them, and, and um, they're just going to take it everywhere they go. And so if you ever see somebody going through the airport like that, that's them struggling with what to do with their baggage. Here's the reality. All of us, every single one of us has baggage. We've all got it. There's some place somewhere in our life that something happened, and when it happened, it wasn't that big a deal at first, and we told ourselves, well, it's not really that big of a thing. Um, but then it started to hurt a little bit, and then it festers some, and, and then, now it's a bad deal, and now I can't even carry this thing around, and it gets to be cumbersome and hard. So we, what we do is we learn to compensate, and we walk a little differently, and we talk a little differently, and, and, and it just, we just kind of learn how to make friends with whatever baggage we have. And now we're not really enjoying the journey at all because of all this baggage we've got going. And you wouldn't call us journey people. You would call us destination people. We just want to get to the end. You know, it's just spare me all the rest of this stuff. So that life becomes not even fun anymore. 
and you start to look at life in a way that, that probably isn't healthy for you. So let's start off today, and let's just ask the question, where does all of the baggage come from? I mean, where does it come from? How do we end up with all this stuff in the first place? Let's start by asking this question. What am I carrying around that should not be a part of the journey? What am I carrying around that should not be a part of the journey? And I'm, ladies, I'm not talking about your husband. He's got to go with, okay? You can't leave him behind. He's got to go with you. What part, what thing, what issue in your life on your trip are you traveling with that just really should not be on the trip? And yet everywhere you go, every part of your life, you're carrying it with you, and it's a problem for you. What do you have to do to get rid of it? Well, let's, let's talk for a little bit about baggage issues. There's, I'm going to give you five baggage issues, things that we've got that are problems. Number one is unfulfilled expectations. I thought it was going to be this way, and it wasn't this way. It turned out to be this way. I expected it to, to happen like this, and it didn't. It happened a different way, and I don't really know what to do about it. In fact, let me just say that the basis of your anger is the result of unmet expectation. Your anger is a direct result of unmet expectation. That's why you get angry at things. Because you expected things to be a certain way, and when it didn't make it to that, then you got mad about it. And, and, and all of your anger can be traced back in some form or another to some expectation that wasn't met. You thought it was going to be this way, it wasn't. It upset you. And a ton of us are carrying around baggage due to unmet expectation. Proverbs 13 says it like this, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. See, a lot of us in the room, we're going to heaven, but we're a little sick because we had a hope and it never happened. We had an expectation that life was going to be a certain way for us, and it didn't happen. We get to be a certain age, and we look back at our life, and we're like, you know what? I did not plot this course. This didn't turn out the way I thought it was going to turn out. That uh, makes us a little heart sick. And there's this disappointment that occurs, and we're miserable because of it. Many of us, the problem is that we have this, unex uh, this uh, unmet, uh, unrealistic expectation in life. We think that God obligates himself to us. We, we think that God is obligated to make earth heaven. See, when you realize that Jesus came to, to rescue us from this, okay, he didn't really come to clean it all up and make it better. I mean, that's, he came to rescue us. He, he, basically, he's, he, he tells us, you know, in this world, you're going to have trouble. I've come to help you overcome it. I've come to get you out of there. But we keep waiting on God and wanting God to make it better. And I think we have it so good in this country. This is the greatest country on the planet. I mean, we've got every freedom you can imagine. You can do pretty much whatever you want to do. I think it's so good for us that we just expect God to make earth heaven. Here's what you need to know. This isn't going to be heaven. See, your, your soul was created for Eden. That's what you need to understand. Your soul was created for Eden. That's why when things don't happen exactly the way you want it to happen, that's why when injustice occurs and you see it and you cry out, that's not fair. That's because your soul knows there is something that's perfect out there somewhere, but I'm not experiencing it, and it's a problem for me. And so what we want is we just, want, we just expect the whole world to be that way. I used to tell kids in, in youth group all the time, stop expecting life to be fair. The sooner you understand life's not fair, the, the better off in life you're going to be. Because when life's not fair, you go, well, I already knew that. I didn't, I didn't expect it to be that way. 
Now, I know we do that. I know we have these expectations, but we do this to our kids. We raise our kids, kind of training them to expect life to be a certain way when it's not realistic that it would be that way. We don't tell them how hard life is going to be. We don't sit them down when they're three years old and say, now listen to me. I mean, it's a complicated, competitive world, and if you don't get your act together by the time you're five, you're going to be left behind. <laughs> you know, I mean, w- what, we do, what we do is we tell them, you're a flower. You're a pretty special flower, and the world loves you. You know what, my first grade teacher would have done me a big favor if she would have just sat me down and said, you know what, by the time, you're, by the time you guys get to be 25 years old, 50% of you likely are going to be in poverty. You know, that would have been better. That, that way I kind of know what the expectations are, what to expect, what's going to happen. Instead, she told me I was special. She told me that I was, you know, just such a smart little boy and that things were so great. It would have been so much better if she'd have been honest with me. She told me I was special. She didn't tell me I was one of six billion. She didn't tell me I was going to compete with everybody else for the same food and the same jobs and the same money and the same everything else, right? That's what we tell our kids. You're special. You're a flower. You're wonderful. That's not true. You're one of six billion, dude. That's what you are. You're one of six billion. So what's, what this looks like in my own life is, you know, a father has sons. I I had two boys right off the bat. Well, what goes through my mind is, I'm going to make them sports jocks. I'm going to make them incredible athletes. They are going to get the best coaching. They're going to have the best equipment. Poor Bennett. By the time Bennett was six years old, I had him in full catcher's gear. Okay? He had the whole deal. He had the new glove. He he didn't have the old style helmet that you, the face mask. He had the hockey mask. He had the special... Uh, double hinged pads and he had the, the chest protector so cute at 6 years old you know he's, he's kind of walking around and we would put that poor kid behind the, ke- the, 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 the home plate when it's 100 degrees outside I remember packing with us when we would take all this gear we would take a, a Tupperware bowl full of ice water and a washcloth so that we could you know drench his face in between innings he'd come out of there just beet red and, and but you know I'm like no buddy you can do it you're tough you're strong you can you know, you're going to do this. And then, you know, I would take all the, both the boys, even Delaney, get them in the backyard. I'd pitch to them, pitch to them every day. I would pitch to them, teach them how to catch. And they'd get in there and they'd try and hit the ball and I'd throw it. And I always threw harder than anybody they would face in Little League, right? I'm always throwing hard because I want to make sure it's, I, I want to make sure that they don't face anything in a game that's harder than me. So I'm throwing it as hard, you know, not as hard as I can, but I'm throwing it hard and I'm like, and Bennett and Tanner knocking the ball out of the yard, and I'm like, Myra, come look at this. Look at what they're doing. Watch this. Show mommy. And, you know, and they'd hit it, and then they'd smile like, I'm special. And then they'd go to Little League, and they'd stand in there with an 8-year-old that, that can't. What happens when an 8-year-old throws the ball at you? You have no idea where it's going. See, Daddy never hit me. But an 8-year-old throws it. You're not really sure where it's going to go. And once in a while, they'd get hit, and they'd look at me like, Dad, you didn't tell me I was going to get hit. What's up with that? So consequently, they start swinging at balls that they shouldn't be swinging at, swinging at balls over their head. I've taught them not to swing at balls over their head. What are you doing swinging at that ball? It's over your head. And then they would strike out, and mom would go, oh, that's okay. That's okay. You tried. You tried. I love you, honey. I'm like, that's not okay. He swung at the ball over his head. What's wrong with you? We're not out here just to try. We're out here to win. We're keeping score. 
Oh, you're so special. No, he's not special. He struck out. He's over the other kids that struck out. That's not special. It's not okay. You got to hit the ball. We're out here to have fun. No, we're not out here to have fun. Who said anything about fun? See, I promise you, if you go for that job interview and they turn you down and they say, but you know what? We really respect how hard you tried. That does not help you. Does that help you? Does that make you feel any better? Do you leave that office going, oh, I'm special? No. You leave that office and you go, I'm one of six billion and I didn't make the cut. That's what you leave saying to yourself because there's an unmet expectation. Second thing, untreated pain. Untreated pain. We've all tried to smile, haven't we? Just walk on like there's no big deal, like, like it's all right, I'm really not hurt, I'm okay. And people ask us, how you doing? And we know, we know what the game is. We know we're supposed to say, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine, I'm good. And inside you're dying. And you just really want to talk to somebody, but you, you can't just trust anybody. And you know socially the right thing to say is, I'm, I'm just fine. Unfortunately, we're not just fine. We have learned how to dr uh, tuck dreadful things away and hide them from everybody else. And we say things like, it's no big deal. But it was a big deal. And it was an issue. And we know that when people ask us, they don't really want the whole version. They just want to hear us say, it's just a greeting. You know, it's just, hey, how you doing? I'm fine. That if we really told the truth, it might take a half hour or longer to lay out everything that's going on in our world. And Jeremiah promised that there would be a generation of people they dressed the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. It'll be okay. It's not okay. It's not okay. We've learned that dreadful art of tucking it away. It hurt. It hurt bad. We never really deal with it properly. Number three, unresolved yesterdays. I'm talking about the fact that we don't sometimes deal with things as quickly as we should and I'm a master at this I don't like confrontation I, I don't I, I'm, I'm horrible at this um, the sad news is that stuff is going to happen to you okay I'm here to tell you the truth stuff is going to happen to you it's not always going to be great the real problem is not that things happen to us the real problem is that um, we put it off we just go into a delay mode some of us have baggage of delayed repair it's an unresolved yesterday. Ephesians 4 talks about the power of something not dealt with soon enough. Ephesians 4.26, in your anger, do not sin. And then here's the, here's the secret to not let anger, which, by the way, you are going to have, okay? The Bible's assuming you're going to be angry. It, it's it's kind of laying that out there. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. So the Bible is actually giving you the benefit of the doubt here. And it's telling you, okay, we get it. You're going to have times when you, you just want to blow your stack. You're going to have times when you're going to get angry. We, we know that. But here's the trick. Don't go to sleep on that. Don't let a whole lot of time go past. Settle issues quickly. And then look what it says happens next if you don't do that. Do not give the devil a foothold. See, when you, when you don't resolve something quickly, and again, I, I'm not a really good one to be talking about this. I'm not good at this. 
But when we don't resolve things quickly, what happens is the devil gets a foothold and begins to make problems. And he just, he can take, you know, the expression, you took a mountain, a molehill, made a mountain out of a molehill. It's what the, Lord, the devil does sometimes. You don't get it resolved, and the next thing you know, a molehill becomes a mountain, and it's like, how did we get there? Some of us have baggage simply because of unresolved conflict in yesterday's. Number four, an unhealthy view of self. It's a cause for baggage. For different reasons, we walk around with sometimes a very, very low self-esteem. And many times it gets backed up by the fact that we're not one of the big three. You say, Brett, what's one of the big three? The big three are these. In this country, if you're not beautiful, if you're not one of the beautiful people, if you're not a stellar athlete, or if you're not extremely intelligent, you get left behind, don't you? If you don't stand out for your looks or for your athletic prowess or for your ability to know a lot of stuff about a lot of things, then you kind of get left to the side. And what happens is there really aren't a whole lot of those people that, that, are, that are in the top big three. I mean, pretty much we're all in the same boat, but we don't, we don't think that way and we're not taught that way. We're taught if we're not that, we're not anything. And even though the majority of us are all in the same pot of just, you know, we're just average athletes and we're just average good looking and we're just average intelligence, we feel like we're nothing. And that's the problem. See, in my life, I've not ever been one of the beautiful people. I've not ever um, been the, the star athlete that, that had newspaper articles written about him the following day. I don't know what it is to be a sports hero. I know what it is to dream about being a sports hero, but I don't know what that's like. I've never gotten special treatment because I could hit a ball farther than anybody or play a sport better than somebody. That's not my reality. One look at my college transcripts, and you'd know he is not one of the academ academicians. Is that the word? He's not real smart. <laughs> Yesterday, I could not spell pastor. Today, I are one. How's that? <laughs> I'm still not quite sure how I married my wife. She was one of the smartest people I've ever been around, and she married me. How smart can she be? <laughs> not sure. I heard this story, this is a true story about a, a dad who had a son, and the son was really, really smart. So smart, in fact, that he made it all the way through school, never made anything but A's. And, and when he got to the end, he was so proud, he brought his report card to his dad. He's getting ready to graduate high school. He brings his report card to his dad, and he says, Dad, check this out. I did it. I made it all the way through. I never made one B. And the dad, who had not been a real good student, said, Son, you know what? I never made a B either. Can I just tell you, God sees you differently than you see yourself. And if you live with your life with your only assessment being an, a self-assessment, you're going to end up with baggage. If the only assessment you ever have is your own self-assessment, you are going to have baggage. And that baggage is not even accurate. Listen to this. This comes out of Romans chapter 12. And this comes from the message, and I'm going to use the message a couple of times today just because I think it's, it says it so well. The only, listen to this, the only accurate way to understand ourselves is by what God is and by what he does for us, not by what we are and what we do for him. Isn't that good? 
See, the real view of Brett Wilson is not what my professor said about me or not what the coach said about me, not what some girl that I dated in high school says about me. The real view of Brett Wilson is what God sees in me. The accurate view is not how we see ourselves. It's how God sees you. But we still carry around baggage of insecurity simply because we believe what we say about ourselves or what someone else has said about us and not what God says about us. Number five, unrepented sin creates baggage. I did not say unconfessed sin and I did not say unforgiven sin. See, many times we confess and for those of us who are Christians, we are forgiven, okay? You are forgiven. It's not about that. The problem is we never change directions. We never repent. Repent means to be walking in one direction, turn and walk the other direction. It means to change your mind, change your direction. That's what repenting is all about. It means more than saying I'm sorry. It means I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something about the behavior. And some of us are carrying baggage, not because we aren't forgiven. We are. We just haven't changed the behavior. We haven't changed anything. Unrepented sin. David said in Psalm 32, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy. It's baggage. That's what, that's what he's describing is baggage. All day long, your, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Some of you feel the weight of life. Some of you feel the weight of church and the weight of God. And, it, and, and he never intended for you to feel that. Well, I said I was sorry. Well, yeah, you did. But the problem is you haven't changed anything. So we carry around the baggage of bad decisions and bad friends and all the junk that God so desperately wants to remove from our life. You say, well, Brett, what's the, you know, how we fix it? What's the solution? How we get better? Well, let's, let's start checking the baggage. See, I love this part. I love when you fly. I love the part where you... You're able to give all those heavy bags to somebody else and let them worry about it. You know, there's this, I can't describe it, but if you've ever flown, you know what I'm talking about. There's this moment when you finally get your bag checked and they take it and you realize it was underweight, you didn't have to pay extra, and, and now you don't have to mess with that anymore, right? It's like, whew, that's great. I don't have to pack that thing around anymore. I'll get that when I get to wherever it is that I'm going. Hopefully, yeah. And they say, you know what, we'll have this waiting on you when you get to your destination, hopefully, and you can take it with you then. Let's consider today how you can check your baggage with one spiritual truth that just might change your life. We're looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Here's what that means. Even though you live in the world with worldly problems, you cannot really fix worldly problems with worldly solutions. Here's the problem with that. You're assuming that the problems you have are natural problems. They are not natural problems. They are spiritual problems. All this is the result. Every bad thing that happens is the result of the fall, which is a spiritual issue. And what we try to do is we try to fix spiritual problems with natural things. And it's just not meant to work that way. God says that's not ever going to work. You have to fix a spiritual problem with a spiritual cure. 
And the Bible says there is a reason why you still have this baggage. And that's why you're trying to fix this with pills or therapy or, or, or a self-help book or, you know, I'll just try harder or I'll just give up. And God says, no, listen, you can't really fix it that way. The weapons we fight with, and God says, I've got some really great weapons. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Strongholds. That's a very interesting word. That's a biblical word for baggage. Strongholds. A stronghold is something that is attached to you. A stronghold is something that pulls you down, that weights you down, that, that keeps you from being all you could be or it keeps you from being at full speed. It's that one thing that when you gave your life to Christ, you just you couldn't get past it. There were, all the other things seem to fall away kind of easy, but there's that one thing. It seems like we all have that one thing. And no matter how hard you try, no matter how much you pray, how much you, you know, you still carry around this one thing, and it frustrates you, and I have that. You say, Brent, really, you've got something like that? We all have something like that. Well, there's always that thing that's the problem, it's stronghold. What is that one thing for you? What is the, the stronghold that is baggage for you? It's interesting. You look that word up in Greek, and, and I'll just tell you this about Greek. In, in Greek, for every English word that we have, there are four Greek words. Greek is a very precise language. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating language to really get into. It's very descriptive. And the Greek word for this word, stronghold, and I don't know that I'm going to say this right, it's, it's got a guttural sound to it. Uchurima. Uchurima. It, it literally means a prisoner locked. Listen to the key word here. A prisoner locked by deception. It's living your life by something that isn't even true. When he uses the word stronghold, he's talking about something that you're living your life by that's not even true. Here's the big idea of the message today. Your baggage is not even based on reality. It's based on a lie. The baggage that I've been carrying around and that you've been carrying around, it seems real. It seems like a fact, but it's based on a lie. And you'll never be free as long as you live your life based on something that is not true. You're a prisoner to deception. So if that's true, and it is, what is the solution? How do we get past it? How do we fix it? If the whole problem is a lie, we need to see the truth. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. We just looked at this passage last week. Let's, let's take a look again. How do you fix this whole stronghold thing? Very clearly, we demolish arguments. You say, well, what's that? That's the stuff that the devil keeps whispering in your ear day after day after day. That's not even true. You know God doesn't love you as much because of that. You know that you're a huge disappointment to God. You know that you can't live that way and go to church. You know that you'll never win anybody to Jesus if, you, if you're going to be the way you are. Winning people to Jesus is somebody else's thing. It's not your thing because you're not good enough. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, which is what God says about you, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Well, how are we doing that? Well, listen to Romans chapter 12. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Here's how you change. You want to, you want to change? You want to be transformed? 
Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So in other words, we've got to put some fresh thoughts in your head. We've got to get you to think differently. That's our problem. We don't think the way we're supposed to think. You want to see it someplace else? We'll go to Ephesians chapter 4. It says it there too. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. You say, well, Brett, it's just not that easy. Which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. And here's how you fix it. Here's how you're made new. To be made new in the attitude of your minds. Here's what you have to do. And here's the problem with us. You have to believe it. You have to believe that what God says about you is true and not what the devil says about you is true. You've got to stop walking around your whole life believing that what the devil says about you is the truth. In fact, Jesus said it this way, if you will know the truth, not just have the truth in your lap or not just have the truth on your coffee table, but if you will know the truth, what does the Bible say? If you know the truth, the truth will set you free. I'll give you three truths today heading out the door. You're going to hear these and you're going to say, Brett, that's so simple. That's simple. It is simple, but you know what? You don't believe these things. At least, I run across a lot of people who don't believe these things. I know a lot of, I run into a lot of people who don't seem to know these three things that I'm going to tell you. And I'm telling you, I'm about to give you three simple keys that could unlock a lot of life for you. You've got to buy into it, though. No matter what you've done, no matter what you said last week, I'm never doing that again. And by Wednesday, you've done it again. No matter what you've done, God still loves me. That's number one. That's the number one truth. God still loves me, no matter what. I meet Christian after Christian in counseling and in conversations who have an unhealthy view of God who believe that God really, they are convinced that God is waiting and wanting some kind of religious performance out of them. That if they don't behave well enough, then, then God really doesn't love them. That, that he demands some kind of perfection, and if they can't measure up, then that's when the problems start. See, when you buy that, when you start to think, well, I'm not perfect, I'm not good enough, I can't perform good enough, that is the very beginning of you not coming to church. Because here's what happens. You kind of give up. And you say, you know what? I can't even stand being around God because I, I'm so imperfect and I, I, I'm so bad that I don't even want to go to church. I don't want to hear anybody preach to me. I don't want to hear any, I don't want to sing songs to God. It's just not where I want to be. And the next thing you know, you've missed a Sunday. And the next thing you know, you've missed two Sundays. The next thing you know, you've missed two months, two years, ten years, and you don't go to church anymore. And it's not because God doesn't love you. It's because you've got yourself convinced that God doesn't love you. And you think, man, I'm just not good enough. I can't go. They get convinced that God is too hard to please. And it's just not true. I didn't really understand how much God loved me until I had kids. Now, I'm not suggesting that you have to have kids to understand God's love. I'm just saying for me, it really hit me when I had my own kids. Because see, just like your, your kids, my kids are imperfect. I know that's hard to believe. But it's true. And just like yours, mine do things that they shouldn't. Just like yours, once in a while, mine disappoint me. They, they don't meet an expectation that I have. But you know what? Just like yours, when they don't meet an expectation, 
Does it mean that I love them one ounce less? Absolutely not. Crazy about my kids. Crazy about my kids. Love my kids dearly. Their behavior never affects the volume of love that I have for them. Do I get disappointed sometimes? Absolutely. Expectations not met? Sometimes. Love them any less? Absolutely not. Crazy about my kids. God is that way with us. You've got to realize that he is crazy about you. You are the apple of his eye. He thinks you are the most amazing thing on the planet. We're going to have a vacation Bible school, and we're going to parade all these kids in and tell them, God's crazy about you. In fact, the tagline on the Pandemania of EBS is, God is wild about you. And something crazy happens from the time we're four and five years old and we go to church and somebody tells us God loves us and is crazy about us to the time we become adults, we stop believing that. And we walk around thinking to ourselves, God's not happy with me. God hates my guts, man. I don't do it right. There's no way. I just can't be good enough to please God. I don't even want to go to church because the only people at church are a bunch of goodies. That's when we start calling names and that's when we start saying things like hypocrite. Right? Because we, we know how bad we are and we know how we can't do it right and we just look at everybody else as, oh, they're perfect. They're the goody two-shoes. No, no. None of us in here put together. If you're a visitor this morning and you've come to this church for the very first time, let me set you at ease. We are all screwed up. <laughs> we are. There's nobody in here that's, that's put together. God knows that. Now, he doesn't always like it when I do certain things. He doesn't always like my behavior. There's certain things he watches me do, and he says, Brett, so much more for you than that you're better than that but you know what he never gives up on me and he does not love me one ounce less when I disappoint him and he is motivated to get us out of the messes we're in he has a rescue plan for us I want to share it with you it came he came to help you I want to read to you John 3.16, but I want to read it from the message. And I, I want you to hear this. This is beautiful, just beautiful. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his son. Now, just let me stop for a minute and tell you something. I love you. I do. As your pastor, I love you. I love this church. I love my job. I love serving you. I was, this week, I, I, I made the comment this week that Sometimes I don't think people realize that as the pastor, sometimes your problems become my problems. This girl with the, the, the little boy with leukemia, that's, I'm sharing that problem with her. I worry about that like she worries about that. I have people come to me for counseling for different things. I pray for those things and think about those things. I find myself laying awake at night thinking about you and the things you're going through. Right? It matters. I love you dearly, deeply. But if I have to sacrifice my son Bennett to be in relationship with you, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. It's been nice knowing you because <laughs> I won't do it. I won't do it. I love you, but I don't love you that much. God loves you so much that he took the only son he had and he put him on a cross. That's what God thinks about you. And anything that you think about yourself less than that is a lie. And it's the devil saying, you're not good enough. You don't behave good enough. You don't think good enough. 
You don't sing good enough. You don't know your Bible well enough. You don't pray good enough. You don't go to church often enough. You don't do, you do all that stuff they tell you not to do in church. And God doesn't love you because of it. It's a lie. It's just a lie. This is how much God loved you. God loved the world. He gave his son, listen to this, beautiful, so that no one need be destroyed by believing in him. Anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help. I don't know if that helps you, but that helps me. God loves me. Here's the second thing you need to know. God can free you. Some of you are walking around and you would say, Brett, it's just the way it is. It's just not going to get any better. This is the way it is. It's my life. It's my lot in life. I, this is what I need to get used to. We have learned how to compensate for our baggage. And we've learned how to say, well, it's just, just the way it's going to be. Listen, that's a lie. Don't lose hope. And don't give up on being free. God loves you. God can free you. You want to hear something beautiful? Check this out. Romans from the message again. With the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, that faithful, faithful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ's being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous, low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a faded lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. That is gorgeous. God loves you. He can free you. Number three, God wants to restore you. He wants to restore you. This week, my cell phone, it wanted to do an update. Always makes me nervous when my cell phone wants to do an update. You don't get an option. It's like there's one button, and it says okay on it. I hit that, and it reset everything back to its original specifications. I'm like, well, that reeks. That's not really cool with a cell phone, but think about what God can do in your life if he could reset all the defaults, get rid of a bunch of the stuff. Listen to this, Psalm 71, 20, we're almost done. Though you have made me see troubles, many and bitter, you will restore my life again. From the depths of the earth, you will again bring me up. That's the word of God. God wants to restore you. God loves you. God wants to free you. God wants to restore you. Everything I've talked to you about this morning is predicated on a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's all predicated on a relationship with Jesus. Here's what I'm going to say. If you are not a Christian, none of that applies to you. And I'm telling you up front, I don't care what you've done, I don't care how bad you think you are, you can be saved, you can be a Christian. It's not based on how good you are. You can't be good enough. You can't behave well enough to get God to love you more. God's already done the dirty work by sending Jesus to the cross. All you've got to do is say, you know what, I need forgiveness. I need a Savior. Here I am. We're going to give you that opportunity in just a minute. We're going to stand and sing. And if you've never given your heart and your life to Christ, we invite you to do that. The best decision you'll ever make in your life, giving your life to Christ. He knows how to handle your life better than you do. He, he loves you. He wants to free you. He wants to set you free and, and set you, restore you. Let's pray together. God, we just... There's no way that we can match your love. It's just impossible. You, you blow us away by how much you care and how much you love us. You sent Jesus. I mean, you sent Jesus. 
So God, this morning we sit in this room, we're humbled. And we're sorry for the things we've done wrong. And we're sorry that we seemingly we can't even fix it. We want to do better, we try. God, there are some behaviors we need to change. We need to repent of some things. We need your help with that. Lord, I pray this morning in this room, we are seeing ourselves as you see us, not as we see ourselves, not as, not as the world sees us, but that we would finally believe it when you whisper in our ear, I love you. You're crazy about us, God. Help us to live like it. It's in Jesus' name we pray.